This is an ohs.com.au production. Okay, welcome to episode 12 of the Australian Health and Safety Business Podcast. I'm Brendan Tarazzi, the host of the show and also the director of ohs.com.au, Australia's first health and safety training marketplace. Today I'm joined by Adam Fletcher uh, from Integrated Safety Support. G'day, Adam. G'day, Brendan. How are we on this beautiful afternoon? I'm, I'm not sure what it's like in Melbourne, but Sydney is um, turned out a sunny day for the first time in weeks. Yeah, no, it's absolutely beautiful here. I've uh, thankfully had just work to do from the office, and I'm in shorts and T-shirt, and it's delightful. Oh, how good is that? So tell me a little bit about uh, Integrated Safety Support and what you guys do. Yeah, thank you. So Integrated Safety Support really was born uh, when I returned from the United States in 2006. Uh, I've been working as a research scientist for the US Army in Washington, D.C., specifically looking at sleep and fatigue issues uh, for the US Army. Uh, And I realised I really wanted to move out of full-time research and into solving challenges and problems related to fatigue and workplace performance and safety uh, in government and and industry organisations. So I I founded the company and we've really been focused uh, nearly 13 years now on on very uh, fatigue-related issues. Um, It's something that in the early days we market for but it's very clear from the work that we've been doing uh, and the long-term clients able to build up that, yeah, we've really been able to establish a, a really valuable niche and, and we, yeah, thankfully get to do really valuable and interesting work all over the world, mainly related to human fatigue and keeping people alert and safe and productive in 24-hour work environments. So I'm curious about the US military. Do they do they sleep-starve their, their people or...? Because you often hear that sort of, you know, military, they, they learn to, to survive on very little sleep. Is that the case or do they encourage um, sleep? Look, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's something probably a number of people don't fully understand or perhaps hear a few myths, myths about. I mean, most people, when they're going through their training and certainly in basic training and a lot of specialist training, they do have, you know, short to medium term sleep deprivation periods so that you can learn what happens to you personally when you're put under uh, a period where you're not getting enough sleep. But more often than not in in operational environments or operational theatre, they generally do try and optimise the sleep that people are getting unless it's going to be unsafe for people to stop. So, you know, know, people think that the military are taking, you know, stimulants and uh, and other substances to sort of stay awake all the time. But, but generally they're only doing that if it's not going to be safe for people to stop. Um, they usually would rather people sleep and maintain higher levels of performance. And, of course, the military is a lot more than just, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I had envisaged on the coalface actually in some kind of um, war or, or something like that, but there's lots of different parts of the military, obviously. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there's a much better understanding, you know, even in the last four or five years, I think there's a much better understanding that optimum performance is much, much more than being sufficiently awake and, you know, having your eyes open and breathing. I think there's much better understanding of the nuances of, of situational awareness and other subtle executive 
performance capabilities and, and, and sleep is clearly a, a major foundation for that and that's understood you know, more, more so now than, as I said, even four or five years ago. So when I met you probably, oh, it would have been about 12 or 13 years ago when we were doing, first brought the sleep pods to Australia, yeah. um, we soon discovered that, like, Australia kind of led the world in sleep science. Why, why do you think that's the case? Why, I mean, we're such a small country in relation to the rest of the world, um, at least in population size. Why do you think that Australia has been up there with... Um, yeah, we, we definitely do punch above our weight. There's no, no question about that. There's a lot of very high calibre uh, sleep scientists and people in related fields like fatigue uh, in Australia and New Zealand as well, actually. Um, I don't really know the answer to that question. I mean, there's, there's certainly a lot of links to sleep in modern times uh, in the US. I mean, the, the very uh, discovery of REM sleep at Stanford University in, in the 50s and, and then really the, the sort of expanding view of managing shift work and, and sleep in 24-hour work environments really started at, simultaneously, actually, in both the US and Europe, sort of in late 70s, early 80s. But, yeah, you're right. In, in the 90s and noughties and beyond, there's definitely a big concentration of people who are, you know, respected and, and considered expert in sleep and fatigue-related areas in Australia. And I don't really know why. I think uh, perhaps there were some cultural elements. Um, perhaps there's other explanations. But I've been, I've been around this field for more than 25 years and I don't have a really clear answer for that. And do you think the, you know, like you being Australian and running an Australian business that works with fatigue management and human factors, do you think that helps you when you, you, you know, you're doing work overseas? Oh, look, I think, I think most places in the world do still really love Australians. I think, you know, we, we are generally liked um, in most places around the world. Because we live so far away, we're, we're not neighbours really to anyone. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we're just, yeah, a distant novelty usually. Um, so I definitely think, you know, people are interested in, in spending time with Australians and, and I think that's a factor. But I, I also generally think, and I don't know whether this is just because of our, you know, multicultural heritage uh, or, or what it might be, but I mean, one of the pieces of feedback my team and I get a lot from clients around the world is that, you know, we tend to be very respectful and aware of cultural and other factors. So obviously sleep and fatigue issues are fairly hardwired into us as humans uh, in many ways, but there's obviously lots of cultural and local factors that can influence people's choices to sleep or not to sleep and things like that. And, you know, a lot of the feedback we get is that we're very aware and factor in a lot of those very local cultural and other factors. And, and so there seems to be something about um, our ability to, to, to consider those things and not just try and force our solution on people that seems to be very uh, appreciated as well. So I think that's a, a factor. So uh, integrated safety support developing technology to help manage sleep or how do you sit as far as that goes moving forward? Yeah, so we're certainly not going to be developing any hardware. So, you know, monitoring devices, be they, you know, wrist-worn sleep monitors or uh, camera cameras mounted on a, a dashboard or in a cockpit. You know, those technology-type solutions are definitely for others. Um, we're building a lot of more software-based solutions. So we create integrations of, you know, fatigue modelling software 
into existing rosterings and scheduling systems and things like that. Uh, Earlier this year, we released our first app, which is a free app available on the Apple and Android app stores called Fatigue Safe, and that's effectively a a one-minute personal self-assessment for fatigue. Uh, And certainly, we've got a lot of data analytics capability, and so we're building a lot of software app and and analysis type uh, solutions. Uh, yeah. but not not so much in the hardware space. So it's more around the, I guess, like when you consult the clients, it's more about analysing the data that they're collecting around sleep and fatigue management. Would that be a...? That is a lot of it, and certainly an increasing proportion of what we're focusing on. We still do some more traditional consulting in the sense that we might review fatigue-related policies and procedures. We might carry out risk assessments for a particular business or, or operational site. Um, so that more sort of classic safety management consulting, but certainly increasingly clients are looking for more technology-driven solutions, um, be they you know, algorithms, streamline analysis or reporting capability and things like that. And we're certainly well uh, fit out to be able to do that. Because, yeah, I'm seeing like a, a trend across so many industries where data and data and analytics is really where the world's moving and we've got so much data that you've got to be able to analyse it and work out what it actually means. Exactly. I mean, I think that the majority of organisations now do have huge volumes of data. Um, what we discover with our clients is that they generally still are very much uh, data streams in silos so there'll be yeah. a silo of safety-related information that's separate from the silo of human resources information, which will include, you know, overtime and absenteeism and sick leave and, you know, sick leave and things like that. And that'll be separate to industrial things. And, I mean, the data analytics methods that we deploy quite a lot, you know, we really start being able to look across all these different data sets and also scraping in other external data sets like weather information or public holiday calendars and things like that and actually starting to see where the patterns exist in these previously separate streams of data. Yeah, that so makes we're definitely sense. getting a lot of very, very uh, deep insights and in some cases very unexpected insights from a lot of those things and yeah, it's something we've had a lot of success in the last few years and it's definitely an area that's exploding quite quickly. And, and what percentage would you say like of your... Um, of your practice would be overseas related work versus local work on a percentage basis. Is it like 80% local and 20% overseas or? No, I mean in the last couple of years we've been nearly 50% international each year. Um, where that work has been has, has differed and actually over the last 10 years has differed from year to year quite a bit. Um, in the last year uh, we've done work in Colombia, Brazil, US, Canada, uh, Papua, Papua New Guinea, uh, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, Singapore, India, uh, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, UK. That's probably the main countries. But yeah, probably about 50% the last few years. Now, I've got to ask you, have you tapped into the um, government research um, grants? Uh, not directly, no. I mean, when I, when I was an academic full-time, that was certainly a, a key source of both funding and credibility. Um, mm. I, I do hold a, an adjunct 
professor role at the Uni of South Australia and, and working some research projects, particularly supporting early career researchers, both PhD students and, and junior research staff. But to be honest, it's actually easier to get money from industry and also government agencies directly rather than through the research channels, as long as you're actually going to deliver and, and provide the value that you promise, which we do, um, we tend to have a lot of quite big government contracts that do roll on year on, year out because, you know, we're, they're asking for things, we're promising them and delivering them and they keep finding things for us to do. So it's not, re the research funds is not really something we try and tap into too much these days. Yeah, I, I think I was more um, thinking around the like the export market development grants, given that you spend so like, much time overseas. Okay, yeah, look, we certainly have uh, have used the export marketing development grant and also the R&D uh, program as well, um, because, yeah, certainly we're not just doing straight, you know, fee-for-service consulting. We, we do develop and and innovate quite a lot and that often means sunk costs within my business to try and develop things that we believe are going to be a value before we test them and evolve them. So yeah, we, we definitely do work with those programs. And are there some major trends in what industry is using your services? Like aviation obviously is one and you mentioned yep. the military. Yeah, look, it does change a bit on the, the sort of geopolitical situation in the world I've observed. Um, there's no question that aviation has been a core focus of ours really ever since the beginning. And I mean, sleep and fatigue management is definitely quite strong in aviation globally. Uh, before the GFC hit, we were seeing a really big upturn in activity and focus in the oil and gas and mining industries, but, we've, but that really fell off a cliff in a pretty major way when the GFC started fighting. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, other industries that you'd think it would be really relevant for, like trucking and rail and logistics and things like that, I mean, they're generally quite low margin businesses. And so our, our observation is they don't tend to get into things unless they're required to by their regulator. Um, and so even though, you know, we certainly do do work in those areas, um, it tends to be a relatively low proportion. So... Yeah, for our business at least, a lot of it is aviation, aerospace, um, government agencies, which could include like emergency services, be that, you know, ambulance, paramedics, police, yeah. fire and things like that, hospitals, um, but also then a spattering of, yeah, mining, oil and gas, logistics and things like that. And so would I be right to assume that most of your work is won by sort of word of mouth? Is that a referral? Mainly, yeah. I mean, we've been around for 12 to 13 years, as I said, and the majority of our work now is uh, repeat repeat clients and yeah. word of mouth. And also when uh, clients change companies or change roles, um, they sometimes inherit a bit of a basket case and um, bring them yeah. in to try and clean up what they've inherited. So that is where most of our work comes from. And uh, the other thing I want to ask you is there's sort of can you give us an example of where there's been like a real ROI on, you know, like a before you guys coming in and advising some changes to be made versus, you know, then you go in, you make implement some changes, do some, I guess, grab some low-hanging fruit to make some wins. And can mm. you give us an example of um, something like that? 
Yeah, I'm putting you a little bit on the spot there, but... Um. No, that's okay. I mean, we don't get to publish sort of specific details for specific clients that often because most of our clients are in competitive areas, but I can definitely give you some, some general examples. I mean, one example that springs to mind was for an aviation company that we were working for who had some very rich data and with our support had some really great data analytics capability. And we actually worked out through the analysis that some of the rules that were legal in terms of what they could operate with flight and duty times were probably not that great from a safety point of view at the edges of the limits. But then there were other rules that they were being constrained by that were nowhere near the, you know, the, the areas where safety would be affected. So, you know, we were able to collect a lot of data that really built a safety case based on their own evidence, their own data, that actually indicated that we thought it would be safer to use a different rule set to the one that they were currently um, needing to work to. And we were given a, a pilot uh, approval and ultimately a, a longer standing approval to actually have a dispensation from the normal regulations, which gave the company a great deal more flexibility um, but really at no loss from a safety point of view. Um, and probably the, the lining on that story too was that they had much higher uh, retention rates of staff and significantly lower sick leave rates as well, which obviously had a very genuine cash improvement for that, that business. And we've seen similar results in terms of reducing absenteeism in other projects we've done in, in a variety of industries, um, certainly in trucking, uh, certainly in uh, rail as well, uh, and even in uh, emergency services situations. So, yeah, if you can be reducing absenteeism and staff turnover, uh, it's a very clear metric. It's definitely very measurable from a dollar point of view, but it's clearly also indicating that people are happier and healthier. And from our, from our point of view, that's a very meaningful metric to be able to track. Cool, okay. Um, so, yeah, I guess when you get wins like that, it, it makes it a lot easier to, um, you know, they'd be, they'd be screaming for you to come back to do some more cool stuff like that. Yeah, well, it does, at a point in time, it does tend to become fairly self-funding, which obviously helps a lot when you're trying to develop new initiatives. If you can go to your executive and say, well, look, we've got evidence that, you know, we've saved $77,000 in this bit of the business in the last six months, you know, what yeah. we like is your permission to spend 30000 on this other initiative, which we think is going to save us hundred grand a year, mm-hmm. and we're going to measure whether we are going to do that or not. Um, it, it does make the case uh, a lot easier to get over the line. Great. Now, you've got a uh, conference, I understand, coming up. Tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're doing and, and what's it called and how people can register. Yeah, we do. Thank you. So... Um, we've had a lot of inquiries, particularly from around the Asia-Pacific region, for us to have a, an APAC event specifically focusing on fatigue management and human factors within industry. So uh, on the 12th to the 14th of March in 2019, we're hosting a three-day event at SunTech uh, Convention Centre in Singapore. Uh, the first day will be a seminar format and the, the following two days, being days two and three, will be a hands-on workshop to be able to build or improve a fatigue management system. Uh, We've got some great speakers confirmed. We've got people coming from NASA, from Boeing. We've got international academics uh, participating, Um, myself and my team, obviously. 
And uh, yeah, certainly uh, people can go to our website and see the, the banner for that and click on that. Uh, our website's integratedsafety.com.au and I'm sure you can probably put that in the notes for this uh, episode as well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Okay, well look, we'll, we're going to wrap up now, um, Adam. So for a guy involved with sleep, how much sleep do you get each night? Uh, I definitely give it a bigger priority than I did in the past. I would say usually now I spend eight hours in bed. Um, that usually translates into somewhere around seven and a half hours of sleep per day, give or take. But uh, yeah, that definitely keeps me at my best. Okay. How, how old are you? I am 43, about to turn 44. Okay. And then um, what do you like to do to keep fit? Um... I used to do lots of exercise. I've worked out over the years uh, that really I don't need to do as much as I thought I needed to do. Uh, I'm reasonably fit and, and healthy, I would say, but I tend to just stick to doing one yoga session a week, one uh, weight session a week, pretty heavy but safe weights, and generally just one high-interval uh, cardio session a week. And I find if I can do one of those each a week, uh, I stay pretty, pretty fit and well. Oh, that's great. Um, now, over the next 12 months, what uh, personal goal would you like to achieve? Well, I've got a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and next year is her last year before she starts school. And so my real personal goal is actually to just keep a, a very solid balance between contributing and, and getting value from the work we do in the business but also being around uh, as much as I possibly can to be spending time with her and just enjoying that, you know, very special last little window before she starts 12 years of school. Yeah, that, that, that's great. And then finally, um, what business achievement would you like to be most remembered for? This, this is always a bit of a tricky one for people, particularly mm. when I put them on the spot. Mm. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I've always been driven personally and professionally by really trying to support humans, humans to be healthy and safe and, and feel like they've contributed valuably in their work. Um, but if, if I sort of extend it out into the future, I think what I'd really like to be remembered by is, is to be the guy or one of the people who really was able to quantify meaningfully, you know, why looking after people in terms of good rosters and work patterns and supporting good sleep behaviours and things like that. I'd really love to be remembered as one of the people who helped demonstrate quantitatively why that's good for not only safety but also just business in general and also profit in the bottom line because we're certainly able to do that now and I don't even think a few years ago we were able to do that in a very clear way but now we certainly can. Great. All right, Adam. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show. And if you want to hear more uh, or, or uh, learn more about Adam, it's integratedsafety.com.au. And then finally, if you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and, and leave us a review.